uh, thank you so much. Thank you all for coming out uh, this evening. Um, I am going to um, read from, um, from the novel, but um, I still am very much writing poetry and I uh, want to begin with a poem. Um, the poem's called 1910. Um, and among other things that happened that year, um, the uh, Russian poet Anna Akhmatova met the painter uh, Amadeo Modigliani in Paris, and uh, they had a, a serious uh, get-together. <laughs> um, and, and so um, w one thing I've thought about um, over the years is um, what if World War I uh, didn't happen? Um, it certainly didn't have to happen. Um, and what if um, that, you know, that sort of force that creates uh, the calamitous 20th century, what if that didn't happen? That's what this poem is about. 1910. The somnolent grasping nations do not ruin the known world. Amadeo and Anna, full of oblivion and perspicuity, stroll through the Luxembourg gardens, pausing for no special reason occasionally. Lenin gives up his rhetoric to raise orchids. Trotsky turns to the Kabbalah and ponders the wisdom of mystery. Capitalists renounce their riches to become mendicants. The spiritual as evinced in the paintings of Amadeo and the poems of Anna dwells unthreatened. Progress spends years on a haiku. Scientists do not cut down the tree of knowledge. Electric excitement sits each drowsy afternoon with a glass of aged burgundy. Cannons are for, are, are for small children to climb on. Horses snort peaceably at the occasional eccentric car. Amadeo finds the money for more paint, Anna for more ink. Neither the colors nor the words will fade. They know this. Lovers sit on benches surrounded by other lovers their fates unencumbered by principalities and protectorates. Like confetti, treaties are tossed out second-story windows after a night of reveling, death to all spurious solemnity. The Americans do not have to become lost. The Russians do not have to become Soviet. Amadeo and Anna kiss, not chastely, but full on time's true essence. Just throw money at the end. Okay, I'm going to read um, from Tom of Vietnam, which came out in November. Um, it's a novel, and uh, I'm gonna read a couple paragraphs to situate it for you because it's, it's rather particular in terms of what I'm doing here. Over the course of my lifetime, I have seen the commercial republic, as Ben Franklin called this nation, into which I was born, become a military empire with hundreds of bases across the planet, an empire engaged in direct wars, 
proxy wars, covert actions, and assassinations, all putatively conducted on behalf of my freedom and security. What I'm going to read from tonight is not a political tract on how that happened, but rather a tale of sorts about one person's participation and the effect of that on him and people around him. This empire goes largely unremarked or as quickly defended as the way things have to be. Yet every day the ravages of our wars are present. The great Polish poet Szczesław Miłosz once remarked to the effect that the stature of human beings depended upon how they dealt with suffering. To push suffering away, as is often the case in a society dominated by money and entertainment, or as was the case with communism by ideology, is to diminish that stature. To believe that life is nothing but suffering is to slander the enormous gift of sheer being. My novel is about how one person, a draftee who sees, who sees combat, in the American war in Vietnam tries to deal with suffering. He has committed an action that weighs on him to an extent that feels unbearable. My novel is also about his relation to a text, The Tragedy of King Lear by William Shakespeare, that wrestles as thoroughly as anything anyone has ever written with the bewildering nature of suffering, how it occurs to us and how we bring it upon ourselves. The novel is related in the voice of Tom, who is at once a Vietnam veteran in 1982 riding buses across the United States, and Tom of Bedlam, a character in King Lear who is a fugitive, pretending, among other things, to be mad. Tom is haunted, and my novel is an evocation of that haunting. You will hear on occasion lines and phrases from Shakespeare's play, you will also hear some lines I've written. I could not resist the chance to go one-on-one -on -one with William Shakespeare. As a sort of chorus throughout the novel, you will hear the voice of Knightley, an African-American soldier who during the war was Tom's mentor of sorts. So uh, this book has three, uh, three epigraphs. The first is from King Lear. The good years shall devour them, flesh and fell. Ere they shall make us weep, we'll see them starved first. The second one is from Michael Hare's great book, Dispatches, about Vietnam. Life had made him old. He'd live it out old. And the third is from Martin Luther King Jr his remarkable speech, uh, what's known as the Riverside Church speech, April 4th, 1967. If America's soul becomes totally poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. The book is dedicated to those who served and those who marched. Endless swearing a hoarse, braying wind of words, a weary, scornful, bemused reply to a war, swearing at those who were there and those who were not, at the army and the enemy, at death and life, everything blasted, withered, and coated by the tongue of injury. The question behind each insult and mockery being, what 
in the vast scheme of motley doings conspired to put me here? How did speeches spoken by gas bags of every stripe over decades come to endanger my modest network of blood? And if I wanted to be here in my arrogance, manhood, confusion, enthusiasm, stupidity, patriotism, I must swear all the more who could have known. Out, dunghill. Swearing about food, rain, heat, women, officers, and most of all, each other. Each of us in the same unpredictable predicament. Swears coupled with other swears, vicious adjectives meeting nasty nouns, motherfucking shithead, goddamn asshole. Semi-swears, the ritual male abusing of male anatomy. You worthless little prick. The voice measured a judgment. Or lighthearted, oh, by the way. Long strings of swears blurring into one run-on guttural frenzy. Or sometimes a simple look, bitch, which starts a few shoves, shoulder pushes, and glares. The saying that you are a woman, a low blow. Swears for what seems like no reason, your voice mysteriously alive, proclaiming you are here in this far away hell where even on a good unmurderous day, you are pissed. A reason can be found if you want to go looking, but a lot of grim bile is in us already. They're not always bilious. Everyone was once an infant, gurgling, burping, unaffected by the droppings of time. Though I think of guys like Briggs or Stone, who probably by the age of two were waiting to get bigger so they could get to Vietnam and start shooting people. Someone kicked them down the stairs early, the war on the home front. Or without the proclamation of reason or motive, like the tattoos, born to be bad, born to lose, born a conniving chip on the shoulder bastard. Bastardy base, base? Briggs bought it to use the lexicon you adopt when you see much random death. There wasn't a lot of him left either. He was what they call remains. That doesn't matter, does it? Whether there's 98% of you intact or 32%, no open casket for him, if you like an open casket, and a lot of people do. Death looking sort of rosy and peaceful, a time out after the end of time. It's hard to make up for the missing 68%, though you never want to underestimate modern technology. I remember a lot of death, some miscellaneous, some not. Some I heard about second and third and fourth hand as facts became legends. But still, they got inside me. Did you hear? Dost thou know me? I was raised not to swear. It wasn't so much a sin because no one in my house cared about sin. We being take it easy on the brimstone Protestants, social Christians who wake up on Christmas morning, remember Jesus, and then go back to sleep. It was because it was distasteful and bad manners. I agree with that. 
Swearing makes for a rotten take on life. Ferocious, low down, quick to find fault, the sum of your precious days, little more than exasperation. It worked, though, for the misery we were enduring. I bet even those serious, sweet-faced guys you see in Matthew Brady's photographs of the Civil War swore their church-going heads off. There should be a column of swears in the history books beside this or that war. Probably even Achilles and Hector badmouthed the other guys. Or maybe they were polite. Maybe they were real heroes and respected the men they were killing. I doubt it, but maybe. Didn't Achilles drag Hector's body around at the back of a chariot? Atrocity way more than a word, like what got done to some of our guys, mutilated real bad, their dicks cut off and stuffed in their mouths, and like we did to some of their guys, anger that went past anger, way past. See thyself, devil. At first, before I went over there, when I was in basic and it was fuck this and fuck that, the swearing startled me. Do we have to curse everything? Must words be bullets? And even when I was there, I remember I told Stone one day when we were sitting around doing nothing that it was gratuitous. I talked like that. Two years and two months of college, full of the mild eloquence of an English major's vocabulary. But what vocabulary was right? There was none, probably never has been. The government's language worse than swearing. Vietnamization. There's a word for you. There's a word to die for. When I said that to Stone about gratuitous, he looked at me like I just dropped a turd in his soup. Look, you educated faggot bitch, he said. He paused to smirk, then laid what he considered wisdom on me. Well, tomboy? We'll see if your smart ass stays alive. Guys with too many words in their heads come out on the short side here. How comes that? You had that staying alive thought in the back of your head and the front too. You tried to push it away, but it never left. I wondered sometimes if there were people who expected me to die, who were thinking, Tom, he won't come back. You know, people in my hometown going about their business, taking out a can of creamed corn from a grocery sack, or closing the garage door and thinking, poor Tom, or better him than me, the perennial boundary of empathy, or thinking nothing at all. Tom, he gone. I should have gotten the shivers from Stone because he was laying a curse on me, but I was shivering all the time anyway standing upright and shivering, lying down and shivering, leaning over my food and shivering. How dost, my boy, art cold? Bad night on the heath, Lear, incoming torment. When we were doing nothing and going nowhere, the guys would ask me, hey, college, tell us a story. I told them about Lear. How would you like it if you had two daughters who take what you give them a lot of land and a big house, and then they treat you like squat. How would you like that? 
Once or twice I extended the situation, as in you could have nation problems. You're a big nation who goes to help some little nation that's getting pushed around, but maybe it's not as simple as getting pushed around. There's a civil war, there's a small mountain of barbed history. There's some thoughts called ideology. Idio what? What you say? Speak American? He let his daughters fuck with him? Dude deserved it. Man's gotta be a man. Thy elements below. Where is this daughter? Like in a play, we talk back. No script beyond what we were making up, but we talked back. It meant we were still alive. The storm had not come for us yet. We had no shelter, no hovel, but the storm that waited for each of us hadn't come yet. It's the body that the swearing targets. Hard to be in a body. Most of the time it works okay, but it's permeable easily invaded by foreign objects, fragmentary devices, and it's sad how the mind is always ridiculing the body, how its sexual organs are a source of contempt, and how the act is always seen as obscene. Obscene. The dream of it was the oxygen we breathed. Let copulation thrive, let soldiers forget, let day relieve night. I should ask the lieutenant, what happened? I already told you back then. No, I would say, you have to tell me again. Soldier, he would call me soldier. No matter how much time went by, he would call me soldier. Like a couple of decades after Agincourt or Gettysburg or the Somme, and we meet in some bar, and we're still soldiers. Soldier, we engaged the enemy. As you know, we took some casualties. According to our body count, he would pause there because he liked to savor any official type language. We killed seven of them, some DC, some sympathizers. CC, we called the lieutenant the corpse counter. Did they do that when Napoleon fought battles? walk around afterward and count the dead. The VC took their dead with them anyway. The people who got killed weren't enemy. They were people who were trying to stay alive. They were people living in their godforsaken village that was a happy village once upon a time with children running around barefoot and pigs rooting and old ladies gossiping and everyone praying to whatever gods floated their boat. Don't bring God into it, soldier. Things with the lieutenant would go downhill from there. If I've gotten into the house in a suburb somewhere in Texas, and if the little lady is home, she'll ask me if I want an iced tea. And I'll say, yes, ma'am. The lieutenant will make a strained face like he's got to make a bowel movement and ask how it's going, despite his knowing how it's going and not just for me. Every day, one of us makes it onto the front page, shoots himself, shoots his old lady, shoots somebody of his, gets shot by somebody of his. Some of us haven't adapted well. Hard to get rid of the reek of war inside of us. Who gives anything to poor Tom? I tell him I've been reading King Lear again. 
that actually I never stop reading it, that it's like a Bible to me. That's by Shakespeare, isn't it? His wife says that when she brings in the iced tea on a tray. She smiles, but it's a serious smile. Shakespeare is someone who counts. No matter the bleak, conjured reality, he's an important notion. You get lost in the library, Tom asked Knightley. I look at the iced tea on the tray and the lieutenant's appropriate wife, who looks nice in her J.C. Penny dress, and I want to start bawling. I lack the simplest things, like a woman who gets her hair done every two weeks bringing iced tea on a metal tray that's decorated with some flowers to suggest a modest notion of beauty. I think the flowers are supposed to be pansies. I think of Doreen, that's his lover. She likes flowers. Are those pansies on that tray, ma'am? The lieutenant could feel at that point that things might be starting to get out of hand. He might say again if he was in the right mood, not a good mood, but a responsible mood, his idea of empathy, that I did what I had to do, that I was a soldier. Duty, he'd say. It was a big, small word, but we all had heard it. Though really, we were just some young bodies with heads on them, talking about getting laid and drinking beer and our girls back home, how some of them kiss a photo of us each night and some are cunts getting spooned while our insides get turned outside and their cars. Don't forget the cars. To leave so soon, your speech not yet begun. How do you like your tea? Half a teaspoon of sugar, please. Hot out there today. Hot. Try steamy jungle hot. Try vegetable hell. Try the earth on steroids where stuff can't stop growing like it's talking to you day and night because it can't stop growing. And you can't stop listening. You're sitting or lying down or you're walking and you hear the jungle. And it's not like anything you know because you grew up in the temperate zone where there's winter and spring, your skin itches, and you think you can hear stuff growing, a sound like beetles chewing wood, faint but steady. Want to know what we are? Fertilizer, said Knightley. More tea? Take heed of the foul fiend. The lieutenant wants me gone. I can't blame him. This vet stuff gets tiresome. I want myself gone, but I lack the willpower. Or I like sitting in this living room and thinking this could have been my life with beige curtains and matching French something furniture and a chandelier in the foyer, tasteful, not too sparkly. I didn't have to take everything personally. It was only a war. When I get up to leave, the lieutenant and his wife trade glances. He's going to leave. Did they think I would stay forever? They can diddle from one day to another and be Americans and talk about what's new and exciting. I'm the one who's stuck in forever. I figure Lear doesn't live long after Cordelia dies. You got it. 
man dies right on the spot, right there in front of everybody. Seven bodies are what the lieutenant counted. Math whiz. Does a young girl count for half a body? Thanks for your hospitality. Thanks for telling me I have nothing to absolve, though I doubt if that word is in the lieutenant's vocabulary. Maybe you don't even hear it in church these days. I wouldn't know. I tried to open that window, but it wouldn't open. You did what you did, soldier. That's tautological, but true. We were taking fire, and I turned around and saw someone starting to throw something, and I shot. How old was she? You counted the bodies. How old was she? Guy said you could tell how old the bodies were from their teeth, except they didn't go to dentists the way we did, so it was tricky. You can measure the quality of life according to how many dentists there are. Thanks for the tea. I make it myself. Take care of yourself, soldier. You aren't guilty of anything. I'm ashamed, though. I'm ashamed. Neither of them says, come again. They shut the oversized wooden front door, which looks like giants live there, not people. I walk a few steps, but stop. I'm a little shaky. I don't want to be, but I'm a little shaky. It's like my bones want to leave my flesh. It's good they're not looking at me because I took a bus and then walked a couple miles. All that talking about Fords and Chevys like it was God and the devil. I bought a car when I got back, but I sold it. Buses improve your social life. Maybe I'll stand on the sidewalk for a while. No more social calls to pay today. I forfeited my purposes. The Arizalias look a little wilted. Texas does that. Everyone was screaming. There was so much noise and everyone was screaming. I was screaming too. She had something in her hand. She was going to throw it. Last month, Ramos had bought it. Some kid threw a grenade, one of ours. Ramos played the harmonica. Knightley said it was mournful music, music to make you cry over your mother's grave. Ramos put down his harmonica and made a goofy smile. Then he played some more. They're little people. It's hard to tell who's a kid. They don't live on hamburgers and milkshakes like us. On the playground, all the kids are running, loping, skipping, jumping. I used to do that too. Every second was so full, like being an animal. Shouting for the sake of shouting, being free. Do dee 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 sissa. What she had in her hand was a doll made of some balled up cloth with these pearly buttons for eyes. She had drawn a smile on the face. The hair was some kind of animal hair, maybe from one of those buffaloes they had there. It was fine, though, not coarse. Everything happened fast. When someone fell down on the playground, everyone ran over fast to see what happened. I can hear the teacher blow her whistle and that we were supposed to stop having fun and make a line to go back in. Not everybody stopped. I usually stop, though, 
Because even when I was a kid, I was like that. Someone who listened to what people told him to do. Must have been why I wound up in the army. Later, you muttered about what you were told to do, but you did it. Did I see the doll? Did I go to the other side of the world to see a girl holding a doll? Could be, Knightley would say. He was full of philosophical expertise, like he knew something the rest of us didn't know, like being a Negro gave him extra sensory perception. Maybe it did. He got on some guy's nerves, but not mine. I liked him. I told him once back here about how at random moments I see the doll floating above my head, sort of serene, with that drawn-on smile. Then it blows up. Tom, he said, that's a hallucination. You've been smoking too much weed? I used to, but I gave it up. I've got too much grief to carry around habits, too. Ask poor Tom. He'll tell you. World, world, oh, world. There always would be some girls on the playground with their dolls. They'd form a little circle, and they'd talk to their dolls and comb their hair and sometimes swap clothes from one doll to another. I know because my sisters used to bring their dolls to school sometimes. I could still see how serious their faces were when they were playing. It wasn't really playing. It was practice for being moms, for caring. The guys were running around yelling and pointing their fingers at each other and going, bam, you're dead. Guys were falling down who knew they'd been shot or wounded. Sometimes they'd say, you only graze me and pop back up. The girls were cooing to their dolls. The teacher was strolling around thinking some adult thought. She might as well have been the president. How far my eyes may pierce, I cannot tell. And I can't tell, but I have an idea. That's one of my problems. I've always got an idea. Like Lear, a head full of ideas. He's a hard man, but I've grown to like him. He's so confused, so confident and that it all falls apart. And I'm there railing at him in a good-natured but desperate way. And he's taking it, he's listening, which is more than most guys I knew ever did. Sure, guys would say, sure, meaning I've already got enough shit on my plate, buddy. And they did. But Lear starts listening, not that it does him any good. Maybe it makes him even crazier before he was just imagining. Then he starts to realize it's worse than imagining. It's real. It's a place where you can't take anything back. Like war, like war. Thank you. <laughs>